Well, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have along. Great to have you along with us today. Uh, this past Sunday, in the extraordinary form of the traditional Latin Mass, the traditional liturgical calendar was the Feast of Christ the King, and it was uh, Feast of Christ the King. Um, originally was always celebrated on the last Sunday in October, and for a special reason. It's because that's the Sunday before All Saints Day. And as you know, um, the 1st of November is All Hallows Day, a.k.a. All Saints Day, when we give honor to the Church Triumphant, which is to say to the to the saints in heaven. And then the following day, November the 2nd, is uh, All Souls Day, which was instituted by the church uh, to remind us to pray for the church suffering, which is to say the, the poor souls in purgatory. And the point of putting the Feast of Christ the King directly in front of those two holy days was to celebrate the church militant, the faithful on earth uh, who are fighting the good fight under the banner of uh, our heavenly King, Jesus Christ. That's you and me right now. And so this year, like the very first time the Feast of Christ the King was celebrated back in 1926, the relationship between the feasts is the most obvious because the last Sunday of October happened to be October 31st. And it fell on All Hallows' Eve. So you've got All Hallows' Eve, All Saints, All Souls, Christ the King, All Saints, All Souls, a, a veritable triduum of uh, you know celebrating the Church, uh, militant, triumphant, and suffering. And, and more on that in a bit. But uh, to kick things off, as usual, I want to look at the gospel from uh, the Sunday that began this week, which in the liturgical calendar, uh, you know, the traditional calendar, was the Feast of Christ the King. <clears throat> and the uh, gospel is taken from the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. And our translation today, we're using, uh, as has become the uh, common here, the New Catholic Bible translation. Then Pilate went back into the praetorium, and having summoned Jesus, he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own, or have others told you about me? Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own people and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my followers would have fought to prevent me from being handed over to the Jews. The fact is that my kingdom is not here. Pilate then said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, It is you who say that I am a king. For this was I born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus came, and he tells us this again and again throughout the Gospels, he came to establish a kingdom. And that kingdom is his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. All right, the outpost of that kingdom on the earth, if you will. And But his kingdom is not of earthly origin. It comes from heaven. So Jesus is a king who didn't conquer territories, he didn't conquer lands. Uh, on the contrary, he conquered hearts. He's a king who conquered not by force, but by his cross. And the kingdom on earth is the church. It's the kingdom of divine truth and grace. It is in the world. It is for the world. It is not of the world. 
because the object of the church is not a worldly or natural one. As important as worldly and natural objectives are, the church's object is entirely supernatural. It is the salvation and sanctification of souls. Salus anumatum supreme alex, the supreme law, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. And that's no nonsense. And that's why the psalmist tells us, put not your trust in princes, in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. You know, many of our fellow citizens, uh, I, I think because of COVID and the 2020 election and all the, all the crazy stuff that's going on, they, they fear that we are witnessing the end of American life as we know it. And they might be right. But even if they are, it's not a cause for despair for Catholics because we have the promise of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that promise was not made for the United States of America or, or for uh, you know, modern democracies. It was made for the Catholic Church because it's the church that communicates the saving grace of Christ to our fallen world. And the Catholic Church has survived every evil empire and, and uh, endured every persecution devised by wicked men and fallen angels for two millennia. And it's a well-known fact of history that the Church grows stronger when she is persecuted, even when the Church is reduced to a remnant. Now, the Word of God tells us not to put our trust in human leaders. And read my lips, politics will not save the world. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus saves the world, is saving the world, through his body, the church, all throughout the ages, until he comes in glory. And I might point out that this promise, the promise of Christ, applies also to the leadership in the church. You know, in the words of the uh, great English Catholic historian Hilary Belloc, he said, The Catholic Church is an institution I am bound to hold divine. But for unbelievers, a proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. <laughs> and uh, things haven't changed much uh, unless it is uh, that they've gotten worse. And, you know, the philosophy behind no-nonsense Catholic is to demonstrate that, you know, there's so much confusion in the world and the church, and an awful lot of confusion, particularly regarding the teaching of the church, can be cleared up pretty quickly, pretty easily, if you're not trying to complicate matters, you know. And, and there are some things that are complex and difficult to understand, but those don't necessarily have to be the concern of the rank-and-file Catholic, you know, um, just in, as, as an example, there, there's a place for highly academic uh, Bible study. And that's precisely uh, amongst academics. The truth is you don't need an advanced degree to have a saving faith. As Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson put it, uh, he said, No soul can be lost by following the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. And he also said that it was the man in the street that understood Jesus and the doctor of the law that was confused and perplexed. So, the point is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar or an expert theologian to go to heaven. And that's the point that seems to be getting lost in the shuffle of the various concerns amongst the leadership of the church today, which are primarily, uh, you know, natural and, and uh, material, right? Um, 
the social justice issues, immigration, uh, climate change, the leadership role of women in the church, synods on synodality, etc., etc., when we all know or should know that the, the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. Salus animatum suprema lex. That's what really matters. And so, my good Catholic friend, let's you and I focus our prayers, our works, our sacrifices on the salvation of souls and on the restoration of the church. And be sure not to place our faith in material or political solutions. Come what may, let's you and me work for the restoration of the Catholic Church in the same way that we are taught to await the return of Christ the King. Not in fear, not in despair, but in joyful hope. Now later on in the program today, we're going to take a look at um, why it was that Pope Paul VI moved the Feast of Christ the King from the last Sunday in October to the last Sunday of the liturgical year. Or did he do more than simply move the feast? We'll talk about that later. Also, I recently saw a story just uh, yesterday um, by a certain Jeff Atrovsky with the headline, Cardinal Supich publicly demands greater use of Latin and Gregorian chant at Chicago Masses. What? I read that and I'm thinking to myself, that is a man bites dog headline right there. You know, given Cardinal Supich's well-known progressivism, you know, I had to wonder if this could really be true. And I'll give you a hint. No, it's not. <laughs> but um, on the contrary, the story uh, is about an article that Cardinal Supich published on All Saints Day on Monday called The Gift of Traditionis Custodes. And it's already all over the internet. But in a nutshell, Cardinal Supich condemns what he calls division and seeks to, quote, under that, that seeks to, quote, undermine the reforms of the Second Vatican Council through the rejection of the most important of them, the reform of the Roman Rite, unquote. So in other words, Cardinal Supich says that everyone must accept the liturgical reforms called for by Vatican II and must embrace a, quote, unitary celebratory form. Now, some have pointed out that this position essentially condemns diversity uh, and demands a rigid uniformity when it comes to the liturgy, which actually contradicts Vatican II, which said, even in the liturgy, the Church has no wish to uh, impose a rigid uniformity in matters which do not implicate the faith or the good of the whole community. So the Cardinal and the Council had more to say uh, on that, on the liturgy, and so we're going to talk about that later in the program as well. Also going to take a quick look at the traditional gospel for All Saints Day and what it has to say about your life today and the connection between this gospel and the fabled Order of the Knights Templar, always a favorite topic here on No Nonsense Catholic. And finally, last week we talked about the communion of saints, and um, you know we know that some of our separated brethren uh, reject prayer to the saints, and even more uh, reject prayers for the souls of the faithful departed. And so since this is the month of the Holy Souls, and we've just celebrated All Saints Day, going to have a little Catholic kryptonite section and answer the questions, why do Catholics pray to the saints when the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and why do Catholics pray for the dead when the word purgatory is not even in the Bible? All that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic after these messages. Hey, you're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want you to stay with us. Got a lot of good stuff to do when we come back.
Okay, welcome back to round two here at No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, Matthew Arnold here uh, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, for two millennia, 2,000 years, Christ and his holy church have been at the vanguard of true progress. Each and every hour of the day, the host and chalice are raised somewhere on the earth. Holy sacrifice of the Mass is celebrated around the clock and around the globe. Listen to the words of our Lord. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're talking about the Feast of Christ the King. And in the traditional Latin Mass, in the traditional calendar, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King on the last Sunday in October. And in Catholic terms, uh, it's still a pretty, you know, a relatively new feast. It was only uh, <clears throat> instituted less than 100 years ago, back in 1925. In the aftermath of the First World War, uh, in the face of the, the rise of communism in Russia, Pope Pius XI instituted the feast in his encyclical Cuis Primus. Uh, the feast was first celebrated the next year on Halloween, as I mentioned before, in 1926. Now, the feast was meant to be celebrated in the last Sunday of October to show its connection to All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And while the world was increasingly telling Christians that they must compartmentalize their religion and give their highest allegiance to the government, Pope Pius XI wrote the following, and I'm going to quote at length because I couldn't say it better than he did. So, if to our Lord Jesus Christ is given all power in heaven and on earth... And if all men, purchased by his precious blood, are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that one of our faculties is that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills which should obey the laws and precepts of God. And he must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. Okay, but there's more to the kingship of Christ than his personal lordship in the individual life of the believer. That's very important because it can't be taken away. But Pius uh, uh, XI continues. He says, All men whether collectively or individually, are under the dominion of Christ. In him is the salvation of the individual. In him is the salvation of society. He is the author of happiness and true prosperity for every man and for every nation. If, therefore, the rulers of nations wish to preserve their authority, to promote and increase the prosperity of their countries, they will not neglect the public duty of reverence and obedience to the rule of Christ. When once men recognize both in private and in public life that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. That these blessings may be abundant and lasting in Christian society, it is necessary that the kingship of our Savior should be as widely as possible recognized and understood, and to this end nothing would serve better than the institution of a special feast in honor of the kingship of Christ. The right which the Church has from Christ himself to teach mankind, to make laws, to govern peoples, in all that pertains to their eternal salvation— 
That right was denied, and he's talking about in the, in the Reformation and the Enlightenment. He says, then gradually the religion of Christ came to be likened to false religions and to be placed ignominiously on the same level with them. Right? This indifferentism. It was then put under the power of the state and tolerated more or less at the whim of princes and rulers. There were even some nations who thought they could dispense with, dispense with God and that their religion should consist in impiety and the neglect of God. The rebellion of individuals and states against the authority of Christ has produced deplorable consequences. Unquote. So, the Feast of Christ the King, then, was a response to the rise of secularization and indifferentism and atheism and communism back in the early 20th century. But in that same century, in 1969... In the aftermath of Vatican II and the uh, coming new liturgical order, Pope Paul VI gave the feast a new name. He changed it from the Feast of Christ the King to the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. And he moved it from Sunday before All Saints Day to the last Sunday of the liturgical year, that is, the Sunday before Advent. Now, at least that's what I used to think. But uh, according to my research, and uh, there's an article about it, a good article by um, Michael Foley from last year's, uh, at this time, the Latin Mass magazine, he said, the Feast of Christ the King was not merely moved, it was replaced. In Calendarium Romanum, the document announcing and explaining the new calendar, uh, Paul VI wrote, the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, occurs on the last Sunday of the liturgical year in place of the feast instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 and assigned to the last Sunday of October. The key words here, and I'm not going to go to the Latin, but the key words are in place of, or uh, could also be translated instead of. So rather than saying that the feast now just occurs on a different date, as the Calendarium says about uh, the, um, uh, let's see, the Feast of the Holy Family, or just saying that it's being moved, as with the Feast of Corpus Christi, the Novus Ordo, Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Universe, he says, replaces the Feast of Christ the King. And what really happened is that Paul VI abolished the Feast of Christ the King and replaced it with uh, a solemnity that was fabricated by Concilium and, and the Liturgy Committee under Annabali Bugnini. And the two celebrations have certainly a lot in common, but it's clearly not the same feast, just moved to a different Sunday. And what's different? Well, obviously it was given a new name and a new date, but it was also given new proper prayers, all of which de-emphasized the social reign of Christ the King. And why did that happen? And well, Seems like the simplest answer uh, is that Pius XI's integralism did not fit with the spirit of Vatican II, quote-unquote. And integralism is, uh, generally speaking, it's the belief that your religious convictions should dictate your political and social actions, and uh, specifically the principle that the Catholic faith should be the basis of public law and public policy within civil society. In other words... You know, the basis of Western civilization is integralism, uh, integralism. <clears throat> but that was an embarrassment uh, to the Catholic progressivism, you know, to, to ecumenism and, uh, and uh, the new world order. What uh, 
Cardinal Ratzinger called the official attempt by the church to reconcile itself with the new era inaugurated in 1789, which is the French Revolution. Uh, anyway, as, as uh, Mr. Foley wrote in his article, quote, the new feast guts the original of its intended meaning. The liturgical innovators kicked the can of Christ's reign down to the road to the end of time so that it will no longer interfere with an easygoing accommodation to secularism. But what about all the saints over the centuries that upheld the doctrine that the church must not be totally separate from the state? You know, I, I mean, throughout our Christian history in Christendom, there, the, that, that idea of church and state, if you had mentioned that to somebody in the Middle Ages... Uh, they, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about. What do you mean, church and state? Because, you know, the, the king or the emperor and the pope and the bishop, they, they had their, their spheres, secular and spiritual, but they were dealing with all the same issues, and, and they were complementary. The church and, and, and the, the kingdom, they, they, compl they complemented each other. They, they, were, they were not separate at all, but just represented the spiritual versus the, the temporal. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you can look at our history, and uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has a, a post on the 1 Peter 5 blog from a, a while back called, um, We Have No King, Between Christ the King and We Have No King But Caesar. And in that post, he, he provides this list of royal saints and blesseds, right? So this... this list as long as your arm of, of kings and queens, monarchs, uh, princes, princesses, and so forth throughout our history that the church has raised to the altars and canonized as saints or, or proclaimed blessed. And then he said, um, does modern democracy have a track record of sanctity like that? He asks, where are the dozens of holy presidents, prime ministers, cabinet members, congressmen, mayors, of course, to ask the question is to answer it. And then Dr. Kosnevsky said, uh, this leads me back to Pope Paul VI's suppression of the one feast of Christ the King and his creation of another. What's really going on here? It seems to me that the original feast of Christ the King represents the Catholic vision of society as a hierarchy in which lower is subordinated to higher, with the private sphere and the public sphere united in their acknowledgement of the rights of God and his church. Okay, that's correct. <clears throat> this vision was put aside in 1969 to make way for a vision in which Christ is a king of my heart and a king of the cosmos, the most micro level and the most macro level, but not king of anything in between, not king of culture, of society, of industry, trade, education, civil government. In other words, for such middling spheres, we have no king but Caesar. That's pretty, yeah, pretty heavy. We live in a fallen world, okay? Um, first off, just for some perspective, and, and that means that all earthly kingdoms are doomed to failure precisely because they are earthly kingdoms. But in reality, as Dr. K tells us, Christian monarchy is the best political system that's ever been devised or could ever be devised. As we can infer from its much greater antiquity and universality, monarchy is the system most natural to human beings. It is the system most akin to supernatural, the supernatural government of the church, 
It is the system that lends itself most readily to collaboration and cooperation with the church in the salvation of men's souls. So he points out that the two wisest men of pagan antiquity had something to say about this. Um, My (laughs) daughter has a joke. She said one day Socrates was uh, giving a speech and somebody stood up and said, who died and made you the smartest man in the world? And Socrates said, Plato. <laughs> so, so the, yeah, generally considered the two wisest uh, of men of pagan antiquity, two greatest philosophers, Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle, whom Aquinas refers to simply as the philosopher. They both maintained that democracy, not only is it not a stable form of government, it is in fact always teetering on the edge of anarchy or tyranny. And that's no nonsense. Okay, we're going to come back, talk a little bit more about this, and on to the, uh, the Gospel for All Saints Day, what that has to do with your life, how it's connected to uh, the Knights Templar, and also about uh, this month of the Holy Soul. So lots to come. Stick with us right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about the Feast of Christ the King and the social reign of Christ the King in the uh, writings and teachings of Pope Pius XI and how that was changed uh, after Vatican II and the Feast of Christ the King replaced by the Solemnity of Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, and what those differences mean. And we're not going to go back over all of that, but I was talking about Christian monarchy and and quoting from an article by Dr. Peter Kosnevsky, and, you know, saying that we do live in a fallen world where earthly kingdoms are doomed to failure because they are fallen kingdoms, and that really Catholic monarchy, and that's a whole show in itself to understand, because we're not talking about absolute monarchy, where the king's word is law and all that stuff. We're talking about the Catholic monarchy, where, where the, the kingdom, uh, you know, the, the secular kingdom and the spiritual kingdom, um, you know, the king and, and, the, and the church, work together for the common good with the goal of saving men's souls. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Krasnevsky said that right now the prospects for Catholic monarchy seem dim. <laughs> no kidding. Is it dim to say the least? He said, but we ought to have the courage to admit that what we're doing isn't working that we're digging ourselves collectively into the deepest and darkest pit human history has ever seen. And he says, compared to this, I would prefer to take my chances on monarchy and aristocracy. In all of its checkered episodes, it still has a proven track record of sanctity and defense of the faith. Nothing else does. Listen, my good Catholic friend, I actively promote Christian chivalry because I believe that it's possible to cultivate moral virtue even in the hostile environment of our vice-ridden secular culture. I believe in the universal call to holiness, the quest for Christian uh, perfection, which is the real message of Vatican II that's been so badly corrupted by the progressives in the Church. And furthermore, I believe that the ideal of Christendom will be resurrected even here in the West, precisely 
through the restoration of the Catholic Church. And all of this seems perfectly obvious to me. But uh, many find it just flatly incomprehensible. You know, when I talk about these things, to uh, um, the common reaction is, well, you can't turn back the clock. My secular friends, far too many of my Catholic ones, deem it impossible to realize the ideal of, of a restored Christendom, for, for the church to recover her, her former prominence because of the inevitability of progress. Right? They say it'd take a miracle. Well, let me ask you, <laughs> would it take a miracle to restore Christian monarchy? Well, of course it would. But I believe in miracles. Who among the, the, the Christians living under Roman persecution would have believed that such a thing as medieval Christendom would even be possible? The establishment of Christendom was a miracle, but it happened. And if it happened once, it can happen again. And that's no nonsense. Okay, moving on. Have you ever heard of the Maltese Cross? And I'm hopefully you're picturing one in your head right now. It's a cross that where the four arms each uh, uh, culminate in two points. And uh, this eight-pointed cross, before it was uh, given to the Knights of Malta many centuries later, this eight-pointed cross was originally granted to the Knights Templar by Pope Eugenius, or Eugene the Third, a, a spiritual son of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, by the way, who was the one that wrote the Templar's Rule of Life. And the, the Templar cross was red, and it was to be worn on the breast of their white habits as a sign of their martyrdom, right? Because they were giving their lives in defense of the Holy Land, or in defense of Christians in the Holy Land. And according to Pope Eugenius, quote, the four arms of the cross symbolize the cardinal virtues of justice, fortitude, prudence, and temperance, while the eight points of the cross represent the eight beatitudes proclaimed by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have the cardinal virtues that you are, are exercised in the practical, and we have the eight beatitudes, um, which are primarily spiritual, but apply to life. So that red cross symbolized uh, the idea that the Templars had the goal of becoming an army of saints. And um, I can tell you right now, um, th if the restoration of Christendom relies on the universal call to holiness, then we're going to need an army of saints, okay? And that's you and me, too. So I just want to take a minute to look at the traditional gospel for All Saints Day, which is from Matthew chapter 5, 2 through 11. Um, then he began to teach them as follows. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted in the cause of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and utter kind utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. See, in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us the keys to finding happiness in this world while teaching us at the same time how to reach heaven, how to be holy. 
to trust in God alone and to turn to Him in our adversities, to have true contrition for our sins, to practice self-control and confident that He will uh, help us, to do only what's right in the eyes of God, to practice forgiveness so that we may be forgiven, to keep our soul free from sins of impurity, to keep peace with others as becomes the true children of God, and to always be ready to suffer for the Catholic faith in order to win heaven. You know, Scott Hahn once said, uh, you know, blessed are those who mourn, right? You know, uh, <clears throat> blessed are, are uh, the persecuted, right? I said that that doesn't sound like, you know, we're with Beatitudes, blessings like that, who needs curses, I think is the way to put it. But the point is that it is, as he goes on to point out, the blueprint for holiness. It is also the blueprint for happiness in this life as well as the next. Yeah, following our Lord, following the Beatitudes, can in fact make you happy. But it can also make you the subject of ridicule because his message is, quote-unquote, foolishness to the world and to the worldly, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. So remember, if you really try and live the Beatitudes, Jesus makes that final promise. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. In the same manner, they persecuted the prophets who preceded you. And that's no nonsense. By the way, reading again from the New Catholic Bible translation, and as you may have noticed, this translation, the, the translation of this gospel is almost word-for-word word identical to the Douay Reims. So I guess it's no wonder that among the modern English uh, Catholic Bible translations, I'm gravitating towards this one. Uh, so anyway, on All Saints Day, then this this is this is the uh, the gospel for All Saints Day, the blueprint for us to become saints. While we, in fact, honor those who have followed and lived the Beatitudes, and uh, and we give honor then to the Church triumphant, and then All Souls Day, which was yesterday, was instituted by the Church to remind us to pray for the Church suffering, which is to say all the faithful departed who are in purgatory. And it just so happens that both of those topics are the target for some formidable Catholic kryptonite, um, you know, which is, you may recall, is the no-nonsense no -nonsense Catholic term uh, for arguments against Catholic beliefs that, uh, that um, Catholics themselves typically can't answer. So in regard to prayers for the saints, our Bible-only friends will say, why do Catholics pray to Mary and the saints when the Bible says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. Okay, so when Catholics pray to Mary and the saints, we're not bypassing Christ, who we most certainly acknowledge as the sole mediator between God and man. On the contrary, we are going to Christ through Mary and the other saints by asking them to intercede for us with Christ. I think the stumbling block for a lot of our separated brethren is the word pray, that they say, well, you only pray to God because they associate prayer with worship, typically because they've abandoned the sacrifice, right? Without the sacrifice of the Mass, worship for them becomes nothing but prayer. And so uh, when they think they, they associate that with worship when the word prayer literally just means to ask, Right? How do I get to the store? Pray tell. You know? <laughs> I pray thee. It's in, uh, Jesse Romero points out that that language is still in, in legal documents, like in, in warrants that are issued to, to 
uh, by judges to uh, sheriffs and whatnot. So prayer means to ask. Are we just asking for Mary and the saints to intercede on our behalf with Christ? And, and we're, that's following Scripture. St. Paul asks his fellow Christians to intercede for him. Finally, brethren, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified as it was with you. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Or in Romans, he says, Therefore I exhort you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my labors by praying to God for me. St. James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, if that's true, how much more powerful must be the prayers of the mother of our Lord and the saints in heaven? At Cana, Jesus performed his first miracle by virtue of the intercession of his blessed mother. And it's very clear in the book of Revelation that the saints in heaven will intercede for us with their prayers. Uh, Revelation 8, 3 and 4 says, Another angel came forward with a gold censer and stood at the altar. He was given a large quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar that stood before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. See, it's clear also in the records of primitive Christianity that the first Christians, the earliest Christians, eagerly sought the intercession of the saints. In the 4th century, St. John Chrysostom wrote, When you perceive that God is chastening you, fly not to his enemies, but to his friends, the saints, and those who are pleasing to him and have great power. If the saints have such great power with God, how much more the Queen of Saints, the Blessed Virgin. And when we come back, we're going to ask, uh, what about purgatory? Why do we believe in purgatory? Why do we believe in prayer for the dead? That more when we return no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It is November. November is the month of the Holy Souls. And we've been talking about that um, the last uh, couple of uh, programs here. And, uh, of course, this is a bone of contention with some of our separated brethren. And it is a, um, uh, an example of uh, Catholic kryptonite when the Bible Christian asks a Catholic, why do you believe in praying for the dead? Why do you believe in purgatory when the word purgatory isn't even in the Bible? Well, the book of Revelation makes it clear, Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, that nothing unclean will enter heaven. But how many of us, even if we die in a state of grace, how many of us die in a state of spiritual perfection? You know, Scripture and tradition teach that there's punishment due for sins. Uh, eternal punishment for mortal sins and temporal punishment, you know, punishment in time for venial sins. And the sacrament of penance, we go to have our sins absolved in, in confession, and that remits the guilt of the sin, that remits the eternal punishment that was due for mortal sins, but the temporal punishment due for both mortal and venial sins still remains. That's why the priest gives you a penance, to help satisfy for that debt of punishment. Now, the, the temporal punishment uh, for sin can be due to sin, can be satisfied with works of penance, uh, good works, uh, assisting at Holy Mass, receiving the sacraments, almsgiving, prayer, corporal and spiritual works of mercy. All those things can help um, really, you know, uh, remit that debt of temporal punishment. And then after death, 
though, any remaining punishment has to be satisfied in purgatory. Uh, Catholic Christians have always believed in the existence of a place between heaven and hell where souls go to, to be purged of lesser sins and repay the debt of temporal punishment due for sins already forgiven. And we can help the souls, um, uh, the holy souls, remit their debt of punishment with our prayers and sacrifices. We can offer our prayers and sacrifices uh, for the holy souls in purgatory. Now, it is true that the word purgatory is not in the Bible. Uh, but then, you know, the word Trinity and incarnation are not in the Bible. And the word Bible is not in the Bible, right? But obviously, all Christians believe in these things. They, they believe in concepts uh, and, and doctrines that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture. But the Bible shows us the process by which these, uh, these lesser sins and the debt for sin are purged away, and the soul is saved. It's uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. But he says, quote, the person will be saved, though only by passing through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15. Also, the book of Hebrews distinguishes between those who go straight to heaven as the church of the firstborn, while those who enter only after undergoing purification as the spirits of the just made perfect. That's in Hebrews 12. Also, we read in the second book of Maccabees, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. Now, this is a clear reference to prayer for the dead in sacred scripture. And it might shed some light on why the Protestant reformers who denied the doctrine of purgatory also deleted the book of Maccabees, uh, books of Maccabees from the Bible, uh, in their Bibles. In any case, for 1,500 years, all Christians considered these verses biblical references to purgatory. And the majority of Christians still do. And that would be true even if it was just the Catholic Church, but it's also the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, and the Oriental Orthodox Churches and some of the Anglican, Lutheran, and even Methodist traditions hold that for some there is cleansing after death. And that's no nonsense. All right, last but not least... What is up with this headline? We talked about this in the first segment. Uh, this, this story by Jeff Ostrovsky with the headline, Cardinal Supich publicly demands greater use of Latin and Gregorian chant at Chicago masses. And this was posted on the internet yesterday uh, by Jeff Ostrovsky. And the headline, the headline's a come on. Okay? The story is about an article that was published on All Saints Day by Cardinal Supich of Chicago called The Gift of Traditionis Custodes. Right, so just two days ago. Now, in a nutshell, Cardinal Supich condemns what he calls division, which, quote, seeks to undermine the reforms of the Second Vatican Council through the rejection of the most important of them, the reform of the Roman Rite. Okay. First thing you got to point out is that the Second Vatican Council did not call for a new order of the Mass. You will... You will read that document. You can read Sacrosanctum Concilium until your eyes bleed. Okay, They made recommendations about possible reforms to the Mass, but said that no changes must be made unless it's absolutely certain that the Church needs them. Okay, My paraphrase. Anyway, um, Cardinal Soup is just saying everybody has to accept the liturgical reforms uh, called for by Vatican II and must embrace a unitary celebratory form. And, you know, some people have pointed out this is essentially condemns diversity 
and demands a, a rigid conformity, um, a rigid uniformity when it comes to liturgy, which actually contradicts Vatican II, which said, even in the liturgy, the church has no wish to impose a rigid uniformity. Okay? But the point is that, uh, according to His Eminence Blaise Cardinal Supich, we must accept liturgical reforms called for by Vatican II. His words, not mine. Accept liturgical reforms called for by Vatican II. Hence, the misleading headline. Because if the good cardinal really wants us to, to follow the, reform, the reforms in Vatican II, the reforms called for by the, the constitution of the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, that means more Latin and Gregorian chant, among other things. In other words, he and some other highly placed churchmen are misrepresenting the reforms called for by the council uh, with the reforms that were made years later. And with some of those, uh, you know, even after some of the most important of the council fathers were, were had left this life. All right? So what exactly did, uh, uh, you know, what, what unequivocal liturgical mandates did the Second Vatican Council make? All right. Number one, Gregorian chant is to be given the first place in liturgical services. Number two, choirs must be diligently promoted. And I would point out that choirs are not guitar players or praise bands. Uh, as Jeff Ostrowski observes, quote, he said, needless to say, choirs must sing music for choirs. Choral music has nothing to do with goofy songs promoted by companies like OCP. Vatican II said the Latin language is to be retained by clerics in the divine office. What does that mean? That means that when priests are supposed to pray the Liturgy of the Hours in Latin. Vatican II said the treasure of sacred music is to be preserved and fostered with great care. Although, you know, the, the modern liturgists act as, that, as if that means, you know, be forbidden and made illegal. Vatican II says that the musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than that of any other art. Obviously, they didn't want us to abandon the church's musical tradition or the Gregorian chant, which is obviously what happened. Uh, Vatican II also specifically, in, in regard to church music, recommends what's called polyphony. Right? This is chant in harmony. Uh, uh, and Ostrowski said, again, no sane person disputes the meaning of polyphony, and no sane person would claim that tunes by Marty Hagen, David Haas, etc. constitute polyphony. Uh, and then it, Vatican II says congregations must learn Latin. Steps should be taken so that the faithful may be able to celebrate. I'm sorry. Steps should be taken that the faithful may also be able to sing or say together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. So that means the, the responses as well as some of the, uh, the parts of the ordinary, the common prayers that we do every Sunday. Father Louis Boyer, who was um, one of the muckety-mucks of Concilium, uh, and a close friend of Paul VI, pointed out which ones they were. He said, these are the parts which everybody can learn by heart and sing. The Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. All right? In other words, Latin's not optional. And some people don't really want to hear this, but Vatican II said the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. Is, est, in Latin. It's, it, they, it is to be preserved. That's a command, not a suggestion. A command from an ecumenical council. And, you know, a lot of modern churchmen, the, the Pope Francis among them, say ecumenical councils must be obeyed. 
right? Um, Vatican II said the local bishop can decide whether and to what extent the vernacular language is used. It's up to the bishop how much Latin you use and how much vernacular you use. That's according to Vatican II. And you notice the document specifically states whether the vernacular can use it. doesn't say he can eliminate Latin. Uh, and these are some, just, and only some, of, uh, of the actual mandates of Vatican II. Now, apparently, the very churchmen who are demanding that we follow Vatican II regarding the reform of the liturgy have no idea what's in it. Or, uh, you know, more cynically, perhaps they're just using an appeal to Vatican II to justify things that it never called for. And just for the record, the Vatican II Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, never mentioned, much less mandated, any of the following. Altars with the priest facing the people. Communion received standing or in the hand. Female altar servers, right? Uh, uh, altar girls. Lay lectors proclaiming the readings inside the sanctuary. Extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. The elimination of Gregorian chant, uh, you know, the chant properties, which are very ancient. Or the composition of alternate canons, right? New, quote-unquote, Eucharistic prayers. Uh, the destruction of altar rails, secular music during the Mass, etc., etc., etc. And, like I say, that's just the tip of the iceberg, and that's no nonsense. Hey, um, I wanted to mention one other thing before we go here, and that is, hang on a second, I've got it here. Um, this January, January the uh, 29th and 30th, we're going to be having our annual spiritual warfare conference. We have a special guest this year, world-renowned exorcist, uh, Father Chad Ripperger is going to be with us live, along with our own Jesse Romero, of course, and uh, Dr. Dan Schneider and Kyle Clements from the Liber Cristo um, uh, Apostolate. And we've moved the conference to St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Pomona so we can accommodate more attendees, but it is filling up fast. So register now at vmpr.org or call one eight seven seven five two six two one five one. Next week, we're going to look at the 12th century saint who was the first to be canonized using the church's official canonization process. We're going to discover the original and true story of the story of the sword in the stone, and we're going to look at some special indulgences that you can gain for the poor souls in this month of November, the month of the poor souls in purgatory. Hey, thank you for listening. So wonderful to be able to be with you each week. I appreciate uh, um, you listening and uh, and especially your support of the apostolate. Dollar a day. Uh, if you were to if you were to be able to give us a dollar a day, that would put you in the twenty five dollars uh, or over club. And there's a lot of perks there. Go check it out on vmpr.org. And uh, in the meantime, for all you do for the Catholic faith, thank you. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.